Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, the problem with being as awesome as I am is you have to be as awesome as I am every day. Which gets exhausting. But I have to do it because obviously nobody else can. Hey, your attention please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? No! It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and my obsession with comics, movies, and TV shows has lasted basically my whole life. No shit, I honestly can't remember a time when I wasn't fixated by comics, movies, and TV. Now, some people obsess over rare stamps, international politics, the Bolshevik Revolution belly button lamp and other shit. Me? I lose sleep when it comes to comics, movies, and TV shows. So you can imagine that's mostly what I talk about. Nothing new there. But what is a little different this week is I've got more Spider-Man comics to talk about. You newbies may not know this, but Spider-Man's a character that really hasn't gotten all that much attention during the run of Trennis Magnus Punch's reality, and as it happens, that's a little unfortunate because it's not that I don't like Spider-Man. On the contrary. But that was never the issue. The deal here is that I just don't know a hell of a lot about Spider-Man. And my reasons for that are good. Better than you might expect, actually. I'll come back to that later, though. What I'm saying here is being in love with, say, the Stan Lee, John Romita run on Spider-Man just doesn't count for a whole lot. Everybody loves that run on Spider-Man. I've said before that I think there's something about the genetic structure of geeks everywhere that, I don't know, it, it forces us to love the Lee Romita Spider-Man. We may not have much else in common as a fandom, it's true, but we all know that the Lee and Romita run on Amazing Spider-Man fucking destroys. But like I said, that doesn't count for much. Saying that I love the uh, Lee-Romita Spider-Man doesn't mean I get to call myself a Spider-Man fan. Because everybody loves that. Now, you may not agree with that. It's your prerogative. Just remember that this is my podcast. That means I'm right and you're wrong. Even if you agree with me, you're still wrong because you're not me. I'm right. Get it? So anyway. Now, there's a kind of useless story about the hows and whys of my lack of Spider-Man fandom. And I talked about that a fair amount back in my episode about the untold tales of spider-man that came out a couple weeks ago 
So if you want to know why I was unable to get into Spider-Man, even though, hand on heart, I gave it my best effort, go listen to that episode because that's where I break it all down. And that just about brings us to today's subject. More Spider-Man comics. As if that wasn't obvious. The whole idea when I started this podcast was to talk about comics I've read and loved for ages. And I've been pretty upfront about that, too. But my second goal was to read comics that were totally new to me and talk about them a little bit. One kind of obvious hole in my repertoire is Spider-Man. Now, don't get me wrong. I've always appreciated several of the basic concepts behind Spider-Man. But as I've said before, I've had problems trying to become a collector of Spider-Man. Again, go back to the Untold Tales of Spider-Man episode for more on that. But what I'm driving at here is that this seemed like a good time to turn all that shit around. So what I've decided to do for a couple of episodes is, <clears throat> is check out either Spider-Man comics I did manage to read way back when I was a kid. Not that there were very many of them. Or else, read famous storylines that people spray their shorts over even now. And in case it wasn't obvious, there'll be more of this in the future. I can't fit every freaking Spider-Man story out there into just a handful of episodes, no matter how hard I try. So be patient. There'll be more Spider-Man stuff in the future. Plenty of it. But like I said, what we have here is a good chance to read some fairly popular and well-regarded Spider-Man stories. Seems obvious enough. So, in case you couldn't figure out where all this is going, I've read some Spider-Man comics I've never even touched before, and I'm now here to talk about them. Amazing Spider-Man, number 31, begins in the dead of night with a bunch of dudes in purple jumpsuits breaking into a factory that produces radioactive atomic devices. Because this is Silver Age Marvel, so factories like this are more fucking ubiquitous than Starbucks. Now shit, they're probably installing a radiation factory in the mall next week. They find what they're looking for within four minutes, which says all kinds of sad things about the ra this radiation factory's security measures. Speaking of security, the factory's rent-a-cop only notices there are thieves running around and tries to intercept them on their way out of the building, but they use their handy gas gun on him and out he goes. Now, in my 20 years in the security business, I can promise you that this guy is what most of us in the know call a day late and a dollar short. Oh, and he'll probably be unemployed by morning. By sheer coincidence, ah, what, what fateful words in the Silver Age, but whatever. By sheer coincidence, Spider-Man just happens to be hanging around nearby, so he swings into their getaway helicopter and starts trading punches with the thieves. They try to gas Spider-Man, just like they did the Renacop, but Spider-Man can hold his breath for a hell of a long time. I mean, hey, who knew? The Purple Jumpsuit Gang receive a message from their mysterious leader, known only as the Master Planner, instructing the Purple Jumpsuit Gang to execute Emergency Plan G to thwart Spider-Man. If you guessed 
that emergency plan G called for the purple jumpsuit gang to pull out a tactical nuclear weapon to vaporize Spider-Man? Guess again. Nope. Instead, they stash their loot inside a waterproof container and dump it into the bay. Because, hey, what could possibly go wrong with that? But the thick plottens when the action cuts to a nearby underwater base that calls for members of the Purple Jumpsuit Gang equipped with scuba gear to retrieve whatever the Purple Jumpsuit gangsters in the helicopter stole and bring it back to said underwater base. Meanwhile, back on the helicopter, Spidey's finally being <clears throat> overcome by the gas either from the Purple Jumpsuit Gang's gas gun or because the Purple Jumpsuit Gang all ate Mexican food for dinner before their big heist. Either way, it's all Spider-Man can do to stay conscious, so he fucks up the helicopter's rotor blade so it'll crash, and then he jumps out for freedom. You see, Spider-Man doesn't always make helicopters crash, but when he does, he jumps out to safety first. The Purple Jumpsuit Gang escapes from Spider-Man, and, and they all retreat to their underwater base. Meanwhile, the Purple Jumpsuit Gang's leader talks to himself and tells himself over and over again how important it is to avoid Spider-Man because, fuck's sake, nobody can ever find out the Master Planner's true identity. Next morning, Peter heads out to register for college while Aunt May laments silently to herself that she doesn't want to burden Peter with how she's yet again dying from some bullshit or another. And... Look, say whatever you want about Aunt May being a walking argument in favor of euthanasia. At least she doesn't talk to herself like the master planner just did. From there, we get a montage of Peter attending freshman orientation, waiting in line for different bullshit, getting his class schedule, talking shit to Flash Thompson, picking up his books, and doing other things. It's a pretty crowded page, as these things go, so... I guess there wasn't room to show Peter downing six-packs of beer and banging co-eds. I guess that's what future issues are for. Anyway, later that night, Aunt May collapses into Peter's arms as whatever her mystery problem is finally punches her right in the ovaries. This issue was published back when America had a decent healthcare system, so doctors still made house calls at this point. So, Dr. Bromwell pays a visit, and says he doesn't have any fucking idea what's wrong with Aunt May, so he has her taken to the hospital right away. Later, Peter feels guilty as fuck because he didn't even suspect Aunt May was sick, but in his defense, she's always sick. Besides, it's not like she mentioned anything to Peter about it. The next day at school, Peter's sleepy as all fuck because he didn't sleep pretty much at all the night before. Meanwhile, Harry Osborne and Flash Thompson are busy trying to get into Gwen Stacy's pants. But Gwen has a thing for Peter right away, even though he completely ignores her and acts kind of like a douche nozzle. Which proves, once again, what women truly respond to. Peter ignores a few more people, tries calling the hospital for an update, and tries to study, but he just can't stop worrying about Aunt May. Harry and Flash rig Peter's... Ex a chemistry experiment to blow up real good, which is exactly what happened, so Professor Warren tears Peter a new asshole because he thinks it was all done on purpose. Gwen feels guilty about it, even though Peter barely even registered that she exists. Not that it matters, because Peter hauls balls to the hospital as soon as he can to visit Aunt May. He puts on a brave face, but either Peter's really worried about Aunt May, or that chili he had for lunch is just not sitting very well. Later, the doctor 
tells him that nobody can figure out just what the fuck's wrong with Aunt May. So, lacking any expertise from medical science, the doctor recommends a bunch of hippie bullshit and positive thinking. Once Peter gets back home, he finds nothing but bills and considers dropping out of school so he can get a full-time job. Then he remembers that Spider-Man pictures always pay the bills, so he swings around looking for something interesting to take pictures of. But... Apparently, all of New York's supervillains got a group rate for a cruise to the middle of fucking nowhere because there's just nothing interesting going on. Well, that or Chapter 616 of the Supervillains Union of Supervillainy Badness is on strike for better working conditions or something, but that's just my little conspiracy theory. The next day at college doesn't get off to a much better start than the first day because Harry and Flash are still shit-talking Peter behind his back rather than in front of his back, or something. Anyway, but Peter's still convinced that Peter's a good guy, even though so far he's acted like a total dick as far as she knows. Which proves, once again, what women truly respond to. Meanwhile, at the Daily Bugle, Jonah Jameson is writing everybody's balls about the absolute lack of anything newsworthy going on, which, at least in my opinion kind of ties back to my little conspiracy theory that Chapter 616 of the Supervillains Union of Supervillainy Badness is on strike for better working conditions. Anyway, Jameson acts like a total fuck widget, tells Foswell to investigate the robberies of all that scientific equipment, and then he, ride, then he rides Betty Brant's balls about getting a message to Peter to call Jameson right away. Betty agrees to do it, too. Which proves, once again, what women truly respond to. <clears throat> Betty tries calling Peter at home, but nobody answers, which is Ned's cue to swing by Betty's desk to ask her if she has an answer for him yet. Now, I haven't read any of the previous issues, so I'm not sure what this might be referring to, but my guess is that Ned wants anal from Betty, but she doesn't think that would be fair to Peter, so she wants to talk to Peter about it first before she makes any slippery decisions with Ned. The problem is that she hasn't seen Peter since forever. But she's going to stick with him, even though he's acting kind of like a dick. Which proves, once again, what women truly respond to. Meanwhile, Foswell's disguised himself as some jack-off called Patch. He's called Patch because he wears... Wait for it. Because he wears a patch. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm kind of happy all of a sudden that Foswell chose that for a literal alias rather than twisted ankle, cancerous lump, or recently circumcised. But anyway, so Patch overhears Foxy Briggs talking about the robbery, and only the robbery, nothing else. So apparently, if people in a bar are talking about anything except beer and women, that must mean they're somehow involved in nefarious conspiracies with the criminal underworld. That'd be my first assumption, too. So Foswell tries to follow Briggs, but it doesn't work out so well, because Briggs seems to vanish into thin fucking air. Foswell thinks he can't go to the police, because if he's wrong about this, they'll never trust him again. And honestly, why the hell not? I mean, the entire thrust of the story up to this point has been about how quiet the city's been lately. I'm surely the cops don't have anything better to do right now, right? I mean, if Chapter 616 of the Supervillains Union of Supervillainy Badness wasn't on strike for better working conditions, and so you had Doc Ock tearing up Fifth Avenue while Electro and Sandman caused havoc on Brooklyn Bridge, Mysterio knocked out all the T-1000 
TV transmitters all over town, and the hobgoblin was stalking Betty and trying to get anal out of her, while he tries to prove once again what women truly respond to. Hey, Boswell would have a point. You don't waste the police's time in situations like that, but fuck's sake, man. It's not like they have anything better to do right now. Anyway, whatever. So, later, Gwen tries to corner Peter at Empire State University, but Peter barely even pays attention, excuses himself, and then he runs off. Gwen assumes that Peter has the trots because of that chili they all had for lunch. Still, she resolves to, to keep on him and keep trying because, really, he seems like such a swell guy. Which proves, once again, what women truly respond to. The doctor again tells Peter that they have no idea what's wrong with Aunt May, so Peter decides to bury himself in Spider-Man's work. Foswell, disguised as Patch, gets Spider-Man's attention and warns him that there's probably going to be a robbery tonight at Pier 6. Foswell's tip pays off and Spider-Man intercepts the purple jumpsuit gang in the middle of another robbery. They try gassing him again because that worked just so well last time, and but luckily Spider-Man avoids it with great ease. So he's in the middle of beating the fertilizer out of the entire purple jumpsuit gang before they snare him in a net and swim off to safety. Spider-Man can't follow them, and because he's a dick for brains, he didn't even get any pictures of the attempted robbery. Elsewhere, the master planner's pissed off that Spider-Man keeps interfering with his thefts of all this scientific gear because, damn it all, he's trying to use atomic radiation to take over the world, so just what the fuck Spider-Man's problem? Oh, by the way, my original guess was that the master planner is a scab supervillain who's trying to take, o take over and take advantage of the fact that Chapter 616 of the Supervillains Union of Supervillainy Badness is on strike for better working conditions. I mean, there's got to be a reason for this shit, right? Well, that was my theory. Meanwhile, at the hospital, doctors have run some tests on Aunt May, and the results indicate that she's up shit creek without a paddle. But there'll be more after these messages. Desperate breaches of geekdom here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Amazing Spider-Man number 32 kicks off with the Master Planner ranting about Spider-Man's constant interference, followed by the revelation that the Master Planner is in fact... Dr. Octopus. Clearly, Doc Ock is trying to secretly get ahead while the rest of the chapter of 616 of the Supervillains Union of Supervillainy Badness is on strike for better working conditions. That scoundrel. Later, Betty Brant manages to, to corner Peter, 
who's been trying to avoid her lately. But Ned Leeds interrupts the whole thing, so Peter picks a fight with him specifically to piss off Br uh, Betty Brandt and make her hate him. Peter's theory is that if he acts like a complete dick, she'll eventually dump him, little suspecting what it is that women truly respond to. And in his defense, I, actually, I kind of have to admire his foresight on all this. Trying to s trick somebody into dumping you, it actually does work sometimes. <laughs> See, back when I was in high school, I was dating this chick, and I wanted out of the relationship. But, like, I didn't want to be seen as the bad guy, so all I did was take her to Taco Pizza Bell Hut. If she and I went out for dinner, or really for any kind of food whatsoever, any meal, no matter how big a pain in the ass it ended up being, I would always take her to Taco Pizza Bell Hut. Always. Well, eventually she got sick of being with someone who wouldn't take her anyplace else, so she dumped me. And to this day, she thinks it was her idea. Anyway, Jameson interrupts Ned's interruption, and Peter tries to sell him some shitty photos of people going on strike. No doubt they're showing solidarity with Chapter 616 of the Supervillains Union of Supervillainy Badness going on strike for better working conditions. Either way, though, Jameson refused to pay, refused to pay money for those pictures and kicks Peter out of his office. Unfortunately for Peter, Betty didn't buy his little stunt, but Peter's ad adamant that he won't talk his bullshit over with her, leaving better... Betty wondering if she's been wrong about Peter this whole time. Peter's day only gets worse from there because the doctor reports that Aunt May somehow has a radioactive particle in her blood. He tells Peter that they'll try everything, but basically, Aunt May's fucked, really is what it comes down to. Peter can expect her to die a long, slow, horribly painful death from radiation poisoning, after which he'll go into, he'll go into debt to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars from her medical bills and before you know it Peter will probably be turning tricks to care up to scare up some extra cash to pay the whole shit down and you just know Betty won't look look at him the same way after all that the doctor says though that all that shit's just a worst case scenario so chin up when he gets home Peter makes a shitload of calls and manages to track down Kurt Connors shortly later Spider-Man steals a blood sample from the doctor and zips over to Kurt's lab. Kurt analyzes the blood sample and says the only thing that can save the patient is a serum called ISO-36. But that's a stupid name, so from here on in I'm going to refer to it as Magical Health Juice. Spider-Man tells Kurt to order this shit already, and he'll bring back all the money he'll need to pay for it, which Kurt agrees to. Peter then sells all his science equipment, pulls some money from the bank, and then swings by uh, Kurt's lab as Spider-Man to pay for all this shit. Meanwhile, Doc Ock's gang has switched uniforms. They are the Purple Jumpsuit Gang? No more. Nope. From now on, they're the Mexican Bandido Wrestling Gang. And they steal the shipment of magical health juice when it arrives at the airport. Well... Naturally, that pisses Spidey off something fierce, so he jumps out Kurt's window and says he'll get the shit himself and bring it back. He tracks down Frederick Froswell and threatens him with an ass-kicking if he doesn't use his underworld contacts to find out what, where, that is, the master planner is hiding. From there, Spider-Man kind of defeats the entire point of strong-arming Foswell in the first place because he goes on to storm every underworld hideout he knows about 
kicking ass and taking names to find out where the master planner is hiding. Meanwhile, Aunt May has slipped into a coma. Elsewhere, Spider-Man luckily finds a big group of Mexican bandito wrestling gang members. Spider-Man beats the holy piss out of all of them and then goes looking through the hideout for the magical health juice. Unbeknownst to Spider-Man though, Doc Ock set a trap for him. When Spider-Man lunges for the container of magical health juice, he gets zapped by lots of electricity and then Doc Ock pounces on him. The fight's on and Spider-Man and Doc Ock take turns kicking the fertilizer out of each other. Spider-Man eventually decides to go all Samson on the joint and brings the hideout crashing down on them. Doc Ock runs for it, but Spider-Man gets trapped under a huge fucking pile of debris with the magical health juice laying just out of reach. Sure looks like Spider-Man's up shit creek without a paddle, but there'll be more after these messages. If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. Amazing Spider-Man number 33 picks up pretty much where number 32 left off with Spider-Man trapped under a giant fucking pile of debris with the magical health juice laying just out of reach. Spider-Man whines about it for a little while, but then he eventually summons the strength to push all the debris and shit off him, and then he gets swept up in a big flood of water, which carries him right to some of Doc Ock's minions. While Spider-Man was all moping around and shit and trapped under, trapped under the debris, they changed their clothes again. They are the Mexican bandito wrestling gang no more. Now they're back to being the purple jumpsuit gang. But that seems kind of boring, so I'm going to call them the purple jumpsuit gang extreme. So members of the purple jumpsuit gang extreme try to stop Spider-Man from escaping, and they all gang up on him. But Spider-Man just swings wildly until he's beating the holy crap out of everybody. Spider-Man swings back to Kurt's lab, gives him the magical health juice, and they work out a cure for radiation poisoning. Spider-Man drops it off at the hospital so that the doctors can administer it to Aunt May. After that, he doesn't have anything better to do, so he swings back to Doc Ock's hideout to take pictures of what's left of the purple jumpsuit gang, EXTREME, so he can sell them to Joni. Spider-Man tells Foswell all about it, and they watch as the police finally find something worth their precious fucking time to do, and they arrest all the members of the Purple Jumpsuit Gang. EXTREME! Peter develops the pictures and swings by the Daily Bugle to sell them to Jonah. 
Betty corners Peter and sees all his injuries from his fight with Doc Ock and later with the Purple Jumpsuit Gang. Extreme! The bad news is that Betty has a way of blaming all men for shit someone in her past did. And the simple fact of the matter is, Peter's just two balls out for somebody like Betty, so she runs away in shock and horror. Yeah, that's the kind of chick you want to fall in love with, the psycho. Anyway, so Peter unloads the pictures on Jonah for a tidy profit, swings by the hospital, pays off Aunt May's bill, gets checked out by a doctor because he's still all fucked up after his fight with the purple jumpsuit gang extreme. And then it comes out that Aunt May's doing great. She'll make a full recovery. Isn't this wonderful? Aunt May falls asleep while Peter goes home to get him, to get himself some rest while a nurse talks shit about what a big jerk Spider-Man is, especially compared to what a nice guy Peter is. The end. So, what did I think? Honestly, this is pretty reflective of the era that we're in, as far as this vintage of the comics. Aunt May's illness is just vague enough to avoid having to give all these complicated uh, explanations. Doc Ock's master plan is just high-tech enough to sound convincing. Boswell's underworld contacts are implied just enough to avoid having to actually deal with how the real underworld operates. In other words, basically this is classic Stan Lee. Still, it's a pretty influential story. To this day, Amazing Spider-Man number 33 gets riffed upon in newer stories. If Spider-Man's ever in a sewer somewhere or in some other underwater hideout or basically any place where shit might come crashing down on him from overhead, followed by a trickle of water, you can rest assured that he'll get pinned he'll he'll get pinned down before too long, and then he'll have to wrestle out of it and all that shit. Still, this is a triumphant moment. Uh, one of Spider-Man's all-time best. The moment where he finally does lift all that shit off him is a full page splash and understand this is a time and place in comic book history where you really didn't get too many full page splashes you know yeah you would get that introductory page at the beginning of each issue that kind of served as a sort of second cover but other than that splashes were a lot more rare back in these days and so they're powerful as hell when you finally do see them. Anyway, strictly speaking, this should be beyond Spider-Man's power level. But he pushes his way through from sheer force of will. And that's what truly defines Spider-Man as a character. He keeps pushing. He keeps fighting. He never gives up, no matter how terrible the odds are. And because of that, he wins. And usually, it's, it's just so someone can shit-talk him later, but, hey, you can't have everything. <sighs> really. It's Amazing Spider-Man number 33 that keeps this entire thing from, ju from being just another old, weird, goofy Spider-Man story. I mean, you take away the conclusion of the story in number 33, and what you're left with is... A story where Doc Ock takes takes on another alias, 
for no apparent reason. Aunt May's in the hospital once again. Peter loses focus at school once again and all that other shit. I mean, it's really just a bunch of different tropes. Literally, the one new piece of the puzzle is Spider-Man being this close to absolute defeat and certain death, at which time he grits his teeth and forces victory. That is why this story is a classic. Why it appears in so many trade paperbacks and all that stuff. Why writers today riff on Spider-Man's triumph in number 33 and everything else. It's that important. Stan Lee and Steve Ditko found a way to summarize everything Spider-Man's all about in just five pages. Now, true, they needed two kind of mediocre issues to build up to that point, but the payoff, for me anyway, is worth it. Speaking of Steve Ditko, this is near the end of his run on Amazing Spider-Man. I think he stuck around for something like another six months or something like that after this, but we're very close to the start of John Romita coming onto the book. And in a way, I think it's just about time for a new artist. Steve Ditko's plotted some amazing stories. He's co-created some incredibly memorable characters, not least of which is Spider-Man himself. And he's really contributed a lot. But right now, Peter's life is changing. It's in complete upheaval. He's starting up in college. He's making new friends. He's broken up with his main girlfriend since the series began. And this storyline has started a lot of change in Peter's life. It makes sense to me that the visuals ought to change too. I mean, when you think about it, high school was a pretty fucking horrible time in Peter's life. And by and large, I think you could fairly say that Peter had a better time of it in college. Mostly. I have a few hiccups here and there, but largely I think Peter grew more into himself in college than he ever thought about doing in high school. And honestly, I can't think of a better way to visually emphasize all that than to bring in an artist with an altogether lighter, happier style than Steve Ditko. Now, I love Steve Ditko, don't get me wrong, but one thing reading these issues showed me was that it really was time for Ditko to hit the door and make way for John Romita. Yeah, I poked a lot of fun at these issues as I reviewed them, but that was all in fun. I really did enjoy them, but at the same time, every next page showed me that Steve Ditko's time on this character had come and gone. As awesome as his work is, as it is, not was, as awesome as his work is, Peter needed to graduate, visually. He needed to move to the next level, visually. And I'm not just saying all that because I well, I kind of happen to be a little bit of a John Romita fan. I'm saying it because it's fucking true. Harry Osborn, Gwen Stacy, and Miles, Miles Warren were all introduced in these three issues. Obviously, they, go on to, they all go on to play much bigger roles in the future, but their introductions all start here. And I guess the reason I bring all this up is to say I didn't know that going into this thing. So, anyway, all in all, 
these are these are some really fun issues, one of Spider-Man's all-time definitive moments. So I ask you, what's not to like? So I think that's it for now. I'm gonna take a break. Be right back after these messages. Sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> So From Crisis to Crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman, one half month at a time, every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing, not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra... Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. 
Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search on iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Okay, so here we go again. I've got a little bit of feedback here that I need to go through, and this is actually for the second time. I'm really not sure what happens when Fanboyimus Prime sends me email, but it's like something in my recording apparatus just apparently doesn't like it and tries to put a stop to it. It's the only thing I can really think of, uh, because what invariably seems to happen is that when I record lately at least, whenever I record something that has uh, feedback from Fanboyimus Prime, it really is 50-50. I mean, flip a coin. It's 50-50 that I'm going to have some type of technical problem with it where I lose the recording or the recording, you know, never takes place to begin with or, or just, or whatever. I fucking I have no idea why it happens. I can only say that it's happened now a couple of times. And best I can tell, it seems like it only really affects Fanboyimus Prime. So... There you go. I don't know. Uh, But to get into Fanboyimus Prime's email, though, he wrote, On June the 4th, this is an email entitled, Well, I got an interesting story on Batman Returns, so three guesses which episode he's responding to. Prime writes, Hey, Magnus. First off, I really must have missed the bashing of this film on the internet. I've seen it, and I enjoyed it. Like you said in the episode, the film's been regarded by many at the time to be a typical second film. It wasn't as good as the first, but it was still decent enough, and I'm going to put this thing on pause and say, you know, Prime, I, I, and dude, don't take this as me, you know, bashing on you or anything, because I would never do that, but I gotta tell you, man, I mean, I really don't know where you've been keeping yourself that this has eluded you all this time. And... But apparently it has, and so I, it feels like I should give you at least a couple of examples on what that's been like. So you could go to Ain't It Cool News, just do a Google search of Ain't It Cool News, and just uh, you know look for Batman Returns, put it in quote marks, quote mark, Batman Returns, end quote mark, site, colon, ain'titcoolnews.com, or AICN.com, or whatever the fucking web address is. And just do a search uh, through Ain't It Cool News. Everything that they had to say about Batman Returns, especially after, I want to say, 2005, 2006, basically around the time that Batman Begins was kind of the zeitgeist of Batman. 
you, what you're going to find is that it really... It, dude, what people had to say about it really is fucking abysmal. And so, you know, now lately what I've noticed is there seems to have been a very slight turnaround on all of that. Not huge, but it seems like people are just slightly more willing now to give Batman Returns the time of day. And really, same thing uh, for Batman Forever and to a lesser degree Batman and Robin. People seem more willing, I think, to give that original franchise another look and say, you know what, certain things just really weren't that bad at all. And so, you know, that's good news. I mean, don't get me wrong, definitely I'm happy about that. But at least at the time, and like I say, to a degree even now, the prevailing wisdom was, and still kind of is, that Batman Returns is poop on a stick without the stick, and there's just absolutely no redeeming value to it whatsoever. And as I say, I really have no idea how you how you could have missed it all this time, but seems like you did. So, you know, whatever. Like I say, it's not it's not really uh, me bashing on you or anything like that. It's just it's just something I want you to just be aware of and be sensitive to. But I think maybe the granddaddy of them all, uh, as far as Batman Returns and, you know, picking on it and giving it a hard time and everything, has got to be BatmanOnFilm.com. Now, I'm not really sure how specific about all of this I really want to get, but what I can say for sure is that that fucking website has done more to further this sort of anti-Tim Burton Batman sentiment than, honestly, any three other websites that I can think of. All right? The, basically, the stupid son of a bitch who runs that website has got this such this boner for the Chris Nolan Batman that anything else is just shit. And if you don't believe me, you should see the uh, this op-ed that this piece of shit wrote um, about the uh, rebooted Batman that we're going to be getting. Basically, the Batman that's going to show up in uh, Batman v Superman. You should see what he, you know, what he said about it. That oh, this shouldn't happen. You know, this this is basically it's going to be dictating. You know, whoever. You know, whoever ends up handling the rebooted Batman, it's basically going to be dictating his creative uh, creative decisions to him. And plus, it's going to be Batman in the context of uh, other superheroes. And of course, that's just silly on the face of it. No one's going to take that seriously. Fucking blah 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 blah. You know, and it, and it's it really is just so much bullshit that this guy um, has on his site. And basically, the easy version is, and what I'm saying, it's just my opinion, just take it at that, but in my opinion, this guy is just basically a whore, all right, for, uh, what was, what's the name of uh, Chris Nolan's uh, production company? I think it's like uh, Syncope, something like that, Centipede, it's something like that, I don't know. And basically what happened was this prick, um, he would get scoops and stuff and reports and whatnot, from Emma Thomas or whoever Chris Nolan's married to, right? That was his source. So for all of you who loved Batman on film and, you know, their sources and how everything seemed to be just totally true, everything that they that they posted, well, there's a reason for that. Emma was the source. That's why. He's basic. That I mean, second only to Chris Nolan himself, he's getting all of his uh, gossip and stuff for the Nolan films from the horse's mouth, all right? It's hard to get much higher up the food chain than Emma Thomas, or fucking whatever her name is. The chick that Chris Nolan's married to, like I said. All right, and ever since then, he's used his position of power and privilege uh, basically to, you know, run this fucking Gestapo website and uh, this forum of his where people get banned for having the temerity to express a different opinion other than his. And so, 
uh, and like I say, he is no fan of Batman Returns. And so he runs this fucking podcast, right? Where all he ever does is, you know, run down other, you know, other uh, iterations of Batman and how stupid they all are and how Chris Nolan's the only uh, human being in the entire history of mankind who's ever truly understood what Batman's all about and all this other stuff. I mean, basically, he's every Nolanite fucking uh, cliche, you know, that whole Nolan Nazi cliche that everybody has in our heads about what a scary bunch of people th- that, that group of fans uh, that, that group of fans is this guy fucking epitomizes it right jet that's the webmaster's name jet all right and in my opinion like i say that's all you know that's all this is it's just me speculating on a bunch of things the guy's just a fucking dick all right that's just how i see it and so you know you want to know where like 90 percent of this anti-batman returns stupidity comes from fucking look no further all right that guy doesn't know batman comic books from anything, right? I have forgotten more about Batman comics than that stupid son of a bitch is ever liable to know. And the fact of the matter is, though, he has a lot of attention on him, or less so now than he used to, but he he gets a little bit of attention now, um, even though, you know, his fucking meal ticket's dried up. Uh, he still gets a fair amount of attention now, and I just think the guy's an asshole, all right? That's just how I view him. The guy's just a complete dick of a human being, all right? And, you know, like I said, everybody in life is entitled to their own opinion. This one's mine. That guy's just a fucking shyster. He's a bottom-feeding fucking loser. All right? That's how I feel about it. And that's where, I swear to God, like 90% of the anti-Batman return sentiment that has um, come along, uh, come online since probably like 2000, 2001, something like that, around there, that's where most of it's come from, right? Him and his little rinky-dink piece-of-shit website, right? And basically what happened was one day... Somebody at Warner Brothers was dead set on making a, um, a, a new Batman movie of some kind. And as it happens, his really was the most visible website uh, for Batman in film at the time. Because at the time, Batman in film was a fucking joke. It's strange to think now that, you know, we once lived in a world... In fact, it wasn't even all that long ago. We lived in a world where the idea of more Batman movies... It was just, it, it was the butt of a joke. It was a comedy. It, 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 I mean, people people would joke about this online, you know? I mean, Batman was the butt of a lot of jokes there for a lot of years, you know? And it took Chris Nolan to restore, for better or for worse, to restore um, a lot of Batman's credibility. And I think actually now we're to the point where the pendulum has swung so far the other way where, you know, I think you could call Batman fandom these days, you could fairly well call that a religious cult, all right? Anyway... And so, um, but uh, to me, you know, the real topper of it all, the creme de la creme, like I said, was uh, this op-ed that the stupid prick wrote where he uh, decried how, you know, the rebooted Batman is going to debut in a sequel to Superman, right? And, you know, he was just pissed off about that, and that's going to be dictating the next director's creative decisions to him, you know, fucking blah, 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 you know, all that stupidity. And we get into my central premise that I've had for a long time about the DC Cinematic Universe. Specifically, my view is that most people don't actually want a DC Cinematic Universe because there's always some bullshit, retarded reason to wait. All right? I remember back in 1996 when people were saying that 
you know, these news reports were floating around that Tim Burton is going to direct a Superman movie, and it's going to, you know, maybe it's going to suck, maybe it's going to be awesome. I mean, we knew a lot less about that movie then than we do now. But at the time, you know, all anyone knew was that Tim Burton was going to direct a Superman movie, and Batman was going to co-star in it in some capacity. And there was a lot of fucking uh, dissent over that, right? People were saying that, you know, that's disrespectful to Joel Schumacher, you know, uh, Tim Burton should leave it alone, etc., etc., and, uh, you know, that I'm not going to say that that alone killed the Tim Burton Superman movie. I, for all I know, there were probably a ton of other factors that were going on there. But the fact is, people did not respond well to the idea of Superman and Batman teaming up in film or lacking that appearing in the same film at the same time, because I don't think it was actually going to be a team up as such, but whatever. So anyway, flash forward to, um, it was the summer of, I want to say like 2000 or 2001, something like that. And news reports were coming down the line that uh, DC was going to do a Batman versus Superman movie. Where basically, you know, they meet off, they're both established characters. This wasn't going to be an origin story for either of them. And then, you know, they're uh, both established characters. And uh, they, you know, whatever the story of that thing was going to be, you know, and... You know, fans, you know, again, they kind of rebelled against that because their attitude was that Superman and Batman need to be developed uh, in independent franchises first, and then we can do a team-up movie. Which, I'm convinced, did kill that movie. Maybe it didn't kill um, the Tim Burton Superman movie. It for damn sure killed that Batman versus Superman movie from circa 2000, 2001, around there. Fans just did not get on board with it. For whatever retarded reason, they just didn't get on board with it. And so I think the lack of support in this in the grassroots is ultimately what killed that movie. So, okay, fine. Warner Brothers then developed uh, Batman Begins with Chris Nolan and Brian Singer's abortion of a Superman film. Uh, that one had uh, Brandon Routh, as you may remember. And then the, the expectation that a lot of people seem to have was that, okay, we've, we've reintroduced both of these characters... Now let's team them up. And then once again, the fucking fans rebelled against that. All right? No, the, Singer and Nolan both deserve a chance to make a sequel, and then we can, you know, then we can do the team up. Okay. Well, not very long after, uh, Superman Returns ended up completely tanking at the box office, and it seems like I keep having to defend and justify this, guys. Superman Returns lost money at the box office. It did not turn a profit. For all I know, it still hasn't turned a profit. But it for damn sure did not turn a profit when it was in theaters. It didn't. It never was it ever in a, in a profitable territory during its theatrical run. That never happened. Superman Returns was a fucking money pit for Warner Brothers. All right? And it was because of that that Warner Brothers, I'm, maybe you guys are starting to kind of remember th some things now, they decided, you know what, fuck, we, you know, we originally were, uh, were we had a, a, a Superman sequel penciled in for the summer of 2009. Well, we're not going to fucking do that because the last one lost so much money. So what else have we got? Luckily for them, they had a spec script written by the Mulroneys for Justice League Mortal. And so what they were going to do is just make a Justice League movie and use that as their big tentpole for 2009. Once again, say it with me, fans fucking rebelled. They rebelled against that. Right? It was disrespectful to Brian Singer and it was disrespectful to Chris Nolan. They should be given a chance to complete their trilogies before those characters get used, squandered, really, in, in, in these assholes' opinion. And so 
I happened and again there were other factors at work that killed Justice League Mortal as a film. But I'm of the opinion that the fact that fans fucking rebelled against this didn't exactly help matters. So Warner Brothers pulled the plug on what would have been the first live-action team-up of Major League DC superhero characters. All right? And so now here we are once again. Superman has a clean slate. Batman has a clean slate. So let's do a team-up movie. And once again, the fucking fans are throwing a bitch fest over it. All right? And, I, and you know what? I'm actually to the point now where I'm starting to think, you know what? They just don't want it. All right, that's ultimately what this is really all about. They don't want a DC cinematic universe. They can come up with whatever bullshit fucking excuses they want to the contrary, and guys, you're never going to convince me. You don't want this, and that's the problem. All right, and you're trying to couch all of your fucking excuses about this and in terms of artistic credibility and respect for other filmmakers, and fuck you, okay? I don't buy it anymore, okay? Well, actually, anymore. I haven't really believed it for a long time, but I for damn sure don't buy it now. And like I said, I mean, the reason I'm talking about all of this stuff is to say that this asshole, this guy that I think is just a complete pompous asshole, Jet, from Batman on film, he's the fucking ringleader for all this stuff. All right, you want to know who I who, who I would personally hang like 90% of this bullshit on as far as blame is concerned for constantly uh, mucking up uh, Warner Brothers' efforts to, to uh, make more uh, DC-centric movies? Look no further. I mean, look, Warner Brothers gets dragged over the fucking coals every day by these hipster know-it-all fans. Why don't they make more movies? Why don't they make more movies? Well, guys, every time they try, you throw a little bitch fest o- o- over it, all right? That's why they don't do it. All right. You want to you, you want you want to blame somebody for this? Look in the goddamn mirror. All right. Because I because I'm looking at you. I blame you for this. Not you personally, fanboy Miss Prime. I have no idea where you are in this stuff. But I but I do blame Jet and people like him. All right. And so, like I said, boy, that was more of a rant than I intended it to be. But like I was saying, you know, a lot of this anti Batman Returns stuff that's uh, you know that apparently you've somehow slept through that's where a good uh, a good portion of it uh, came from in the first place so anyway there you go <sighs> oh man that felt good anyway so to get back into uh, Prime's email he writes from what I can remember I read the novelization of the film which is Batman Returns I read the novelization of the film before seeing the film, and in a childish way giggling and surprised, Batman said, damn it, in the novel. I believe that was removed from the finished script, or at least the finished film. As for my credits with Batman, I don't think I've ever read any of, uh, any of Frank Miller's Batman comics in my life, and the only Loeb Batman book I've read is Superman Batman. I do remember reading Loeb's X-Force run, and consider the runs that it falls between to be better, to be honest, as I really liked Fabian Nicieza's post-Rob Liefeld X-Force work, and Peter Moore's run, following Loeb's run, to be really good, as well as Loeb's X-Man run. My favorite Batman run is Paul Dini's Detective Comics run, where he reinvented and made Hush his own. Or his own Hush, I should say. Well, that was more the end of that run, but it it was still really good. His Streets of Gotham book was fun and again used Hush well. I mean, it was just genius to use the fact that he changed his appearance to look like Bruce to keep people from wondering why Bruce and Batman vanished at just about the same time. I also have read Prodigal and enjoyed that storyline a lot. 
And speaking of Dick as Batman, I also marathon read uh, Grant Morrison's Batman and Robin run over the course of about three days. And I'm going to put Prime's email on pause here and say, you know, these two points kind of go together. So I kind of wanted to address them together. I never really read all of Paul Dini's um, run on Detective Comics. And the reason for that was because... And, you know, look, damned if I could tell you when it happened, all right? But there came a point where the Batman that I'd grown up with, the Batman that I just really enjoyed reading about, changed, okay? And keep in mind, this is long before Batman's fans started acting like complete dickheads, all right? This is long before that, all right? Um... And like I said, it's it's really hard to pinpoint a time, but I do know that just about the time Paul Dini started his run on Detective Comics, I basically decided, you know what, fuck it, I'm out. I'm out, all right? I'm, this is not the character that I like reading about. I don't relate to any of this anymore. And, you know, if I had to take a guess, you know, uh, just, just take a stab at, you know, when it might have happened... My hunch is I probably sort of hung it up as far as uh, as far as uh, Batman comics are concerned. I want to say that probably happened <sighs> right around the time Jason Todd came back. All right, and really the reason for that it's about as obvious as it may seem. I'm of the opinion that certain deaths in comic books are and should be inviolable, you know? Gwen Stacy died in the comics, and that death means something. Peter Parker was different for having loved and lost Gwen Stacy. All right? And, you know, since we're talking about Spider-Man, same thing's true for Uncle Ben. Probably even more so. Uncle Ben is Spider-Man's entire reason for being. And... If you were to bring back either Gwen Stacy or Uncle Ben, you're changing Spider-Man in ways that I just don't think are appropriate, considering everything that the character has gone through. You know, and so... That is true of other comic book characters as well. I mean, certain characters need to stay dead. Another good example, to kind of tie it all back, is Jason Todd. Jason is Batman's failure, right? He's Batman's bad judgment, right? Jason should never have been Robin in the first place, all right? But since he was, Batman should have kept him on a short leash. And one of the few really redeeming factors of A Death in the Family was that it really did show just how rebellious Jason had become towards the end. You know, that had Jason just shut the fuck up and done what Batman told him to do, waited for him to come back, rather than trying to handle the Joker on his own, things would have gone a lot differently. He'd still be alive today, right? Batman was too slow to rescue Jason, but his failure really started before that. Simply by turning Jason into Robin in the first place, Batman had already lost. It was really just a matter of time until Jason did something that was so frickin' stupid that it got him killed. And now Batman has to live with that. And there is a lot of really good stuff that came out of that. And the minute you bring Jason Todd back, 
I mean, look, as a sort of, you know, one-time thing, you know, I can see where there's one good story in bringing Jason Todd back, and that's basically that moment where Jason and Bruce just level with each other and have it out, whether it's any kind of an argument, confrontation, physical altercation, fight to the death, fucking whatever, all right? That moment where their differences, basically they have their Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker moment with each other. But the minute you finish with that storyline, what the fuck do you do with Jason Todd come back from the dead? I don't know. And it sure as hell looks like DC Comics doesn't know either because I'm not aware of anything really valuable or important or insightful or worthwhile or creative or whatever else that's been done with Jason Todd after that first story. There's one story you can tell where Jason Todd comes back from the dead, after which, then what the hell do you do? You know? And honestly, that really was a bridge too far for me. You know, that's when, honestly, Batman comics just kind of lost me. And honestly, there's just a lot of, there's just, uh, I just regard it as being just really creatively bankrupt to bring, to bring Jason Todd back. But on the other hand, I also kind of view it as, you know, giving fans the middle finger. I mean, look, if this was a decision that was made by editorial at the time, then you know what? There's a sense in which I think they're kind of within their rights to to walk it back if they decide they want to, you know? It doesn't make it a good idea, but obviously I think they're a little bit more within their rights. But dude, they asked the readers what we preferred. And a Democratic majority of people said, we want that guy dead. We want him gone. We want him out of the books. We want to see what's going to happen to Batman once he loses his uh, sidekick, right? And you know what? The reader spoke. They paid for having spoken. And now here it is, you know, a couple decades later, and that decision gets overruled. And I'm very well of the uh, very well aware of the fact that this is a corporate property. They can do whatever the hell they want. It's not about their legal rights. It's about respecting your audience. Fans didn't want this. All right. As a matter of fact, we wanted the complete opposite of this. All right. And if this is what's going to happen, then you know, if they were always going to bring Jason Todd back in the end anyway, then why the fuck did they ask us? And really, why did they charge us for it? Why did we have to pay money calling that 900 number? If in the end Jason was just going to die anyways, you know, what was that worth? And it, I don't know. I mean, it just kind of felt like, you know, this is what you do when you are completely fucking out of ideas. When you just don't know what to do anymore, you start bringing characters back from the dead that need to stay dead. All right. Just so you can answer the question that nobody was asking, what would happen if? All right. And it's just, look, whatever. Anyone who enjoyed those stories, you know what, dude, more power to you. I'm not one of them. And so there you go. And that's and that had already happened, I think, by the time of Paul Dini's Detective Comics run or was starting to happen or something like that. I forget. And that's about the time that I bowed out. So I do remember reading at least some of Paul Dini's Detective Comics. But like I said, it just kind of felt like the character in general had kind of evolved to a point where I just don't relate to this anymore. And like I said, the other thing is, there's, I, I just felt really disrespected and turned off by the fact that they brought Jason Todd back from the dead. I mean, I, I, and I kind of have to ask, you know, which one of you really missed Jason Todd? I mean, who was begging for this guy to come back? You know? I mean, because of, of everything that, you know, that, that was done in the 80s with, and God knows, two comics, I happen to think that 
you know, for everything that the that a death in the family was and wasn't as a story, I don't think it was all that good. But at least good things came out of it, you know. And I gotta know, you know, who missed this guy, you know, because it wasn't me. I don't know anybody who missed him. I don't personally know anyone who did. You know, hell, even Hal Jordan had Hal's Emerald Enforcement Team. But who the fuck missed Jason Todd, you know? I don't know. Anyway, whatever. So it's not worth, you know, having a temper tantrum over. Although I did just kind of have a temper tantrum. But it's look, it's not worth getting angry over. I'm, I'm just saying, you know. That's why I never really got into Paul Dini's run on Detective Comics. It's not that there's anything wrong with Paul Dini. I mean, because honestly... If I have to explain why Paul Dini is awesome when it comes to Batman, there's probably nothing I can say for you, dude. If you don't know, there's nothing I can say to uh, to tell you. So, anyway. Uh, let get back into it, though. Uh, you also mentioned uh, Prodigal. Now, to me, Prodigal was one of those storylines that... It kind of answered the question of why it is that... And I mean in-universe now. Why is it that Bruce Wayne approached Jean-Paul Valley to take over as Batman rather than Dick Grayson? You know? Why didn't Dick Grayson get the job? Well, this story kind of answered that question from two different perspectives. First off, there's Dick Grayson's own perspective, which is Dick doesn't want to be Batman. He's never wanted to be Batman. You know, Dick's path has never been Bruce's path. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, they have differences in philosophy and worldview. It's it's more than just Dick Grayson wanting to be his own man. You know, I realize that's, you know, useful shorthand in comics where you can only have so much dialogue on a page. I get that. Fundamentally, Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne are just different people. You know, they went through similar tragedies at similar times in life, but honestly... Dick handled it better, all right? He's not interested in becoming this angry, obsessive, dark loner, you know? He doesn't want to be Batman. He doesn't want to have anything to do with that. You know, it was fun and games, man. Whenever he was a kid, and they, you know, he and Batman were having these adventures together, it was Batman and Robin, and they're kicking everybody's asses, you know? It's fun and games. But, you know, he gets to a point in life where he wants to start doing these things. He wants to continue doing these things. He simply just wants to do them on his own terms. And what he realizes is he's never going to be able to do that as Robin, as Batman's sidekick. All right, the only way he's ever going to be able to live life his way is by heading out on his own, becoming Nightwing, joining up with the Titans, you know, falling in with a group that by and large kind of comes from a similar attitude that he does. You know, the other sidekicks of the DC universe, maybe they're more comfortable with their mentors than he is. But fundamentally, none of them are necessarily... They don't necessarily want to be their mentors. Excuse me, I'm taking a drink here because I've done a shitload of ranting. <clears throat> so, and that to me is what Dick Grayson's participation in Prodigal, that's what that all came down to, right? Dick doesn't want to be Batman. You know, if you take nothing else away from Prodigal... It's that Dick Grayson didn't want to be Batman. And here's the thing. For Bruce's participation, he knew that. He knew, deep down inside, that 
Dick is always going to view him, Bruce, as his father. And Bruce himself was always going to view Dick Grayson as his son. In ways that he never would. Jason Todd or even Tim Drake. But those two, Bruce and Dick, they really are father and son. And that's what the conclusion of Prodigal was meant to be all about. And push comes to shove, Bruce wasn't comfortable asking Dick to do something that he knows Dick doesn't really want to do. Dick has, doesn't want to be Batman. He's never wanted to be Batman, and Bruce has always known that. That's why he went to Jean-Paul Valley in-universe. Now, behind the scenes, the real explanation is that DC basically wanted to tell a story about why Batman doesn't kill. And so they chose the most unstable, psychotic lunatic they could possibly find. Actually, hell, they couldn't even find one bad enough, so they had to invent one to tell some, you know... I regard Nightfall, well, not Nightfall, so, well, to a degree Nightfall, but really Nightquest as this bullshit straw man argument about why Batman shouldn't kill, all right? Because, you know, basically, uh, Jean-Paul killed somebody, I think it was Abattoir, somebody, I forget who, and because of that, his passive inactivity that allowed that guy to die, Abattoir's victim also died. Graham Etchison, right? And so there's so much collateral damage. I mean, you can't have somebody who's this fucking uh, unstable and stuff, running around, killing people. He's, um, you know, it's just... It, I've always thought that was just the biggest bullshit cop-out. It's Denny O'Neill uh, editorializing, basically. And I realize he's made a career out of that, but even so, I mean, look. What you have in Batman is a guy who's already willing to take the law into his own hands on everything else. He's willing to conduct his own personal uh, war against crime. Really? I'm sorry, has Batman been deputized? Does he have the legal authority to do any of this stuff? No. He also conducts his own police investigations. He breaks into places and steals evidence from crime scenes. Really? Say whatever you want about most CSI labs, they have oversight. Redundancies. Where's Batman's? Batman also beats the shit out of perps. Kidnappers and bank robbers and murderers and all that stuff. Beats the hell out of them. Now those people are scum of the earth, don't get me wrong. But there is such a thing as due process. I'm sorry, does Batman have any legal authority to arrest these people? Where's his... Uh, uh, you know, where's his probable cause? Does he Mirandize his victims? I mean, perps? Where's his, uh, where's his internal affairs? Where's Batman's internal affairs? Who looks over his shoulder to make sure that he's doing the job right? Nobody. Nothing. All right. Batman takes the law into his own hands on every goddamn thing under the sun. All right. And you mean to tell me that a guy who's willing to do all of that is not going to kill some of the people that he goes up against? Look, nobody's saying that he needs to kill every random purse snatcher or something like that. And that's the other thing. People want to make this ridiculous fucking straw man argument. Like the minute you say, well, you know, there are circumstances where Batman not only could, he should kill. Instantly, they want to fucking compare it to the Punisher. Well, fuck you. I am sick and tired of people saying that. All right, the Punisher, that's his shtick. That's what he does. He goes around blowing people away. That's what he does. 
All right. Batman, I think, would be a little bit more selective about it than all of that. All right. And anybody who wants to make that fucking Punisher argument, please shut the fuck up and just don't email me because I don't want to hear it. You're wrong. That's all there is to it. So please don't email me. I don't want to hear it. And but I seriously do think that, you know what, Batman would probably let the penguin live. But not Bane. Not the Joker. Probably not Two-Face. Those are some real, sick, demented, murderous scumbags. Batman would make it his business to end them. And he would sleep like a baby later that night once he did. A guy that already has a psychiatric profile, that he takes the law into his own hands on every single other thing, he's not going to arbitrarily draw the line just for the convenience of the comics code of not killing some of his opponents. Sorry, guys. I don't buy it. And anybody who says that... You know, uh, Bruce Wayne was scarred by losing his parents as a child. So, of course, life is valuable to him. Uh -uh, I don't buy that either. A guy who goes through that as a child, the more likely thing that he's going to take away from that experience is just how cheap, fragile, and meaningless human life really is. Batman would be the ultimate nihilist. It would mean nothing to him to wipe the Joker out. Now, here's the thing. You can't kill the Joker. He's uh, he, he's too much of, a, of an icon at this point. So you need to come up with all these idiotic bullshit reasons why Batman doesn't kill. Mostly so that you can have a next issue box that has, next time, the Joker comes to town. That's the only reason Batman has a no-kill policy. That and Denny O'Neill feels like he needs to... Um, uh, editorializing the pages of his comics and yes i realize denny's been gone for a long time now from batman comics he hasn't touched it in really decades by this point but that doesn't change the fact that he i think really screwed that character up when it comes to that whole no kill policy i mean you know what you're taking him back to his golden age roots on everything except the one thing that really matters the most fuck you anyway whatever so, you know, and I realize now a lot of my comments here have been really angry and ranty, and I don't know why, because it's not like I'm in all that bad a mood. And I'm, and by the way, fanboyamus, I'm certainly not griping at you. You know, I hope you don't take it like that. But well, anyway, so uh, let's see. And getting back into fanboyamus Prime's email, he writes, "I enjoyed Fabian Nicee's Robin and later Red Robin runs. I also liked Scott Snyder's Detective Comics run before the reboot as well." I also loved David Hines' Batman stuff, plus Brave and the Bold number 13 by Mark Wade that has Batman and the Golden Age Flash teaming up. That was pretty fun. I also loved Peter, uh, Peter Tomasi's Nightwing run. I also enjoyed... Eh, there's a lot more of this. Let's skip that. Yeah. Okay, so he, he goes on to say, Yeah, pretty sure that establishes I got more than a handful of Batman trades in the Nolan films as a reference. Not that I'm sure that I needed to do that, but I just felt like talking about some of, some of my favorite Batman stuff. I'm just going to put the email on pause here and say, Dude, yeah, you know what? I mean, it sounds like you didn't think that little remark I made about, you know, ignorant Batman fans was directed at you. It doesn't seem like, you know, it seems like you understand that was not. But all the same, you know... If you want to, if you want to email me and talk about Batman, dude, fucking go for it. You know, I'd love to hear what you have to say, or anybody, any of you. You know, just, you know, just go for it. You know, so, uh, you know, I guess is my way of saying, dude, you don't, you really don't need to justify yourself to me. I completely understand. Anyway, um, to get back into the prime, uh, get back into Prime's email though, he writes. I find that Burton and ba- uh, sorry Burton and Nolan take from the Golden Age of Batman material amusing, and don't blame them for taking cues from that. 
More surprised, my mother had no idea who Bane is, even after all the talk of The Dark Knight Rises. That kind of made me realize what I consider common knowledge and obscure to a normal person probably is very different. I mean, it wasn't like I was expecting, expecting her to know who Mimic or Genisari or Omak are. Genisari, for those that are wondering who the hell that is, basically he's a one-shot mercenary that fought Crystal in Avengers 376. He amused me in his, uh, I'm not, and dude, I'm not, I think I'm having trouble parsing this. Uh, he amused me in his, as he was fighting her, talking about his high-tech weapons he bought. Alright, uh, dude, no offense, I'm, you know, no disrespect here or anything. I really don't know what you're trying to say there, so I'm just going to move on. It struck me as amusing enough to want to wanna use him elsewhere. I mean, he's a merc with a quark, and he managed to not get his butt kicked the first page he clashed with Crystal. She's pretty powerful and oddly not used much as an Avenger now. And there's another series I wonder if you've read. The Mark Gruenwald Squadron Supreme miniseries. Basically, it's the DC Universe if they didn't have a status quo to stick to and find out what happens if heroes try to solve society's ills. Let's just say it didn't go well. I'm going to put your email on pause and say, you know what, dude? No, I've never actually read that. And really the reason for that is because my assumption here is that it's another one of those you know, superhero deconstruction kind of things. And you know what? I'm willing to tolerate that from Alan Moore. And really, even to a degree, from Frank Miller, because I think both of them, you know, there was a time when that was a sort of unique and innovative idea, you know, deconstructing superheroes and analyzing them from, you know, more practical, grounded, realistic, psychological points of view. There was a time when that, I think, was a very innovative way to write a comic book, but dude... It ain't 1987 anymore, and honestly, my view of this is that this is yet another comic book that tears down what superheroes are supposed to be all about, and you know what? Maybe I'm wrong about that, and honestly, I probably will read this at some point, but it's just, I don't know. It's just, it, I had this little, that bit of baggage going into it, and I just, it, this has just never been a priority. But yeah, I'm probably going to read it at some point. I've just, I've never read it before. And those are my reasons why. So, pretty straightforward, really. So, uh, Magnus, uh, sorry, Magnus. Uh, sorry about that. I'm just getting too far ahead in the email here. Um, Fanboyimus Prime ends his email by saying, Well, that was fun. See you next time, Magnus. And dude, I say, you know what? Thank you for taking the time to write in, because obviously this was a little bit of a conversation, well, or maybe monologue stimulator. You know, so uh, thank you very much for taking the time to write in. And to all of you, I just want to again say that, you know, you can always reach me at trenusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. And you can write in, or if you want, what you can do is you can record um, whatever your thoughts are. You can record those and then send those to me either as a WAV file or a high-quality MP3 or just however you want to do it. You know, everybody's welcome to uh, to uh, you know s uh, send me send me feedback and just let me know what you think. So you know, always encourage that. Now, I've I'm not sure if it's obvious or not, but. I've got a crapload more email to sort through here, but I'm already, 
I'm not sure how long I've been going for just here. I'm going to estimate probably 40 minutes. And so it's probably time for me to shut up and, you know, uh, uh, wrap this episode up. So, you know, don't worry, guys. I am going to get through everything, all of this, uh, all of the other emails that I've received from Socrates, Jonathan Kreitz, Curtis King, Brian Hughes, uh, David Thornton, all of this stuff is going to get read on Mike. All of this stuff and more is going to get read on Mike. It's just uh, now's probably not the time to do it because I've already run my mouth so much. So anyway, so I think that's that. So anyway, come back next week. I have no idea what I'll be talking about, but I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link Donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus punches reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.